most people don't like a huge majority of the director's job. And a lot of people think that they're an author, like they're the autora. They're going to be the creative force on set. And even as a director, that is very, very small percentage of directing. That is the feature films, the writer-director features. They all have studios behind them. They have people telling you, like, they have actors that are famous enough to have sway. Like, there is a lot of compromise. There is a lot of other people's creativity. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 26. I'm Elise Sievert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today we have director DP Annika Schoenfeld. We dive into the ins and outs of commercial directing, art department, the devil's in the details, and Anthony Hopkins pulling her into the industry. never be on a video podcast i would be like as soon as the camera turns on like people are just like oh don't you want to act and so and i was like as soon as the camera turns on i start stuttering like i'm like what and then we like fully eloquent able to tell everybody what's going on then a little red light comes on and i'm like what was what was i thinking someone asked me to do like just a hi i'm annika like little interview thing that they could show at a presentation yeah and i tried and i'm like hi i'm annika I had nothing else to say. Like, could not even, like, <laughs> webcam myself. And so, like, the only time I've ever successfully, and it was ter- terrible, terrible. Yeah. In fact, you watch the video, and my hair gives all these cuts. And you notice my hair starts getting worse and worse and worse because it took me three shots of rum to get through the first sentence. <laughs> like, I, I literally, like, my friend was, like, asking me the questions, trying to, like, make it easier. Yeah. And I could not do it. Yeah. To the point that finally I just started taking shots of yeah. rum. And so you see me, like, kind of pulled together for, like, the first line. And then slowly, if you watch really for it, slowly I'm falling apart. <laughs> it reminds me of the photo thing of, like, they take a picture after your first glass of wine, your second glass of wine. You're That's exactly yeah. like, what the so funny and also makes me think of um my friend cast her mom in her shorts and she was like she did great at the audition did totally great but then like being on set that like with all the people and the camera it like totally shut down and went the other way you know and it's commercial where it was super slow motion like motion control rig like camera movement and this girl had to throw a piece of chicken in the air and catch it in her mouth oh my gosh you with the beep because the beep was when the motion control rig was going to start moving and of course it didn't work yeah and she couldn't do it she kept (laughs) missing and the the art director was convinced like no she we just got to keep more takes, more takes, more takes. And I'm like, this is super slow motion. Like she's sweating. Like everything in the studio is about keeping her sweat from showing. Like we're dying. And I was like, it's not going to happen. And he goes off and she does it off camera. She could do it like three times in a row. He's like, no, she's ready. She's ready. Still couldn't do it. And then finally I was like, yeah, you tried doing it. And like he couldn't do it. Like with the lights and this trigger and this, it's not like, okay, I'm ready and I'm just going to do it. It's like, you have okay, to wait. Okay, now there's a beep which means a timed motion camera is happening and I have to do it based on that. And it was just like, yeah, you can't do it. So the actual take in the commercial, it falls directly behind her, but it looks like it went in her mouth, but it actually fell on the floor and it looked like it went in her mouth. And everyone's like, whoa, that's amazing. I can't believe you got that shot. And I'm like, I can't either. <laughs> if she, you was, she was perfect you. and pretended she caught it and like acted like, mm. that's awesome. And I was like, I can't believe she didn't go like oh no she by that point she was like she's a pro I it, no she's like what. i am doing she's this everyone pro. is gonna think i just that just went into my mouth that's amazing yeah and that's so she commitment. actually like oh missed it foot behind her i was like ah mm. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was so funny 
And people still, they see the commercial and they're like, no, it wasn't. No, it didn't. And I was like, I was there. There you saw it. That's so funny. The magic of movie making, right? It's it's true. Put the camera in the right spot. And And all of a sudden you're like, what is happening? It's great. Like, oh. So how, speaking of putting the camera in the right spot, how did you, how did you start? Segway, man. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 Segwaying into that. (laughs) How did you get into um, doing film? Like, how did that start for so, you? So, film, I never, never considered being in the film industry. I never thought, I never thought about being an actor. I never thought about being a director. Like, it wasn't something I was exposed to at all. Um, I always thought I'd end up in something creative, not necessarily the arts, but a creative job. I always kind of expected to be self-employed or have a freelance life. Um, so my parents kind of always lived that way. And... Um, I was working in restaurants my way through college in restaurants. And so I expected to start my own restaurants, like have a chain of restaurants someday. I don't know. Like that's what I would do. Um, And I was still getting my college degree. I was still going through the whole process and I was getting a photo degree. And one semester I had like large, everything was still on film because I'm like that old. Um, so, um, So I had like large format and color and portraiture and something else. And they all had different chemicals. They had different film. They had different paper. And it was just this crazy expensive semester. But if you didn't take them all at once, you're going to end up with a fifth year in college because they only offer them, you know, because they try and do that to you every time. They're like, make more money. Oh, you need an extra semester. You missed this one class. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just had a really expensive semester. So I was uh, waiting tables that semester to um, make a lot more money and a lot less time. And I was serving high tea at this super fancy, super fancy five-star, five-diamond hotel uh, in Richmond, Virginia. And I was working a double. Like, I didn't I didn't care. It was super slow. There's nobody there. I'm about to clean up everything. And concierge comes up. Oh, do you have room for one more? Like, just one more person. She's, you know, she doesn't have a reservation. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I, there's nothing going on. So this tiny little old lady, white curls, like maybe five foot nothing, um, comes in and sits down. And I come to explain her teas. And out of her mouth comes the thickest British accent, like ever. And I'm like, oh, my God. I've never served a British person tea before. You're like, <laughs> like <laughs> screwed. Like, oh, my God. What am I going to do? Like, they know everything about tea because they're British. You know? I mean, I mean yeah. it's true. Yeah. Like, we they, pretend that that's funny cliche. But like, no, I swear. It's very true. <laughs> they definitely know way more than we do about tea, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so I was what just happened? Like, like, she sounded like the Queen of England. I was like, oh, my God. So I mess up her tea. Um, and I just didn't stir it. So it all bruised the bottom. And so it looks like I'm just pouring hot water out of the teapot, but she was so cute and so sweet. And she was like, oh, but now you've preheated the cup and preheated the pot for the actual tea you'll make and explains like the 12 steps to making a British cup of tea. And, um, so I go back, I remake her tea and she's there by herself. So I come in and check on her and we chat for a little while and I go back to pretending I have something to do. And you come back, check on her and, you know, so we chat away a little bit of the afternoon and. Um, and at the end, she's like, oh, can I can I send it to my room? Like, looking through her purse. I was like, your accent's so heavy. I, I was 19 at the time. And I was like, I don't even think she's exchanged money at the airport. Like, that's how hardcore British she felt to me. And um, so I was like, oh, I'm not going to charge you. You taught me to make tea. I mean, what more could I ask for? Um, I was invaluable. And she, she just thought that was the sweetest thing ever. And so she says to me, I know you guys are like, where is this story going? Oh, I'm so <laughs> um, riveted. So she says to me, she's like, oh, Oh my gosh, you're so wonderful. Are you working tomorrow? 
Yes, I'm working tomorrow. I'm coming back. I'm making a reservation. I'm coming back for tea. I'm going to bring my son. We're going to have tea. Do you know my son? And I just look at her and I'm like, well, I can't say I know your offspring, woman <laughs> whose name I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was Anthony Hopkins' mother. And they had just arrived in town to start shooting Hannibal. Oh, my God. And by the end of that week, I was, like, his personal assistant, like, and helping him with, like, where to go in town and what to do and all the stuff. Um, and I got really exposed to the film industry through the shooting of Hannibal um, with their section in Richmond, Virginia. So I met the art director, uh, Norris Spencer, who's since passed, but amazing. He showed me the daily uh, slide film from the set photographer, like, talked about, like, the art department. His design. I had no idea how huge and powerful these people were. I was just working in the hotel where they were all staying and just being you like... You were making tea. Su- I was super... <laughs> I was super bold and had no idea at the time that I was super bold. And I just, you know, I just talked to them and they talked back. And so I was like, set photographer. That's cool. I was getting a photography degree. I was like, that's the coolest job ever. I'm like, totally want that job. And um, yeah, and so a few months later, uh, Anthony actually came back for Hearts in Atlantis and sought me out, like called to find me to bring me back uh, for that film. I actually, he came to my house during college for me to do a photo session and I handed it in for a school assignment. That's amazing. I didn't know what to do with it at the time, so I just handed it into my class. And after that, I was like the girl at school who had like pictures of Anthony Hopkins. That's so funny. Yeah, you just said he came to your house. Like I like the inside of my heart just like fluttered. Oh, he is as wonderful as you could ever dream. Oh my gosh, I love him. He is great. But you're constantly like being like, am I? Am I in a movie? Am I in? His voice is so recognizable that you're constantly like, wait, this is a movie. I'm not really. This is like, not is real life. Happening? Yeah, yeah. he's. Abs- I mean, he's everything you could wish. Oh my he gosh. would be and more. Oh. Like, I love him. Yeah, he's super amazing. What an but yeah, amazing I started story. on these massive sets, and I had friends. So uh, some of my friends were in the lighting and art department, and um, they were telling me about like, oh, because everything again was still on film. And so Hannibal, they have all these crime scenes and things in the beginning. And so they're like, oh, yeah, we got to play dead bodies. But the first couple frames on the roll, you have to, like, make funny photos of you as a dead body so that the photo development place doesn't think that that these are photos of dead dead bodies. bodies. Oh, my God. So they all have these funny pictures of them as dead corpses, like giving the peace sign or thumbs up (laughs) or making funny faces. Because, like, well, you had to take those photos because you're really running it into a place that will do it in an hour. And so some random person at this hour photo place would be like, what is happening? And, like, want to call the cops. So you always have these funny pictures as part of the set making. And so, like, all this stuff that I never would have thought about. And I was just like wow, this is a whole industry. All these people have creative, awesome jobs. It's all creative problem solving. Yeah, film. That's awesome. I want to do this. And I never, I didn't even consider where it would go. I was just like, this is an industry that is everything I've been looking for all coming together. So like the, cum- the accumulation of it all. Yeah, and like the, the family environment, the freelance lifestyle. Every single person has a creative job. Um, down to craft service, you know, mm-hmm. and they get really excited about it and figuring stuff out. And, you know, I've worked on films where uh, we had one of our lead actresses had celiac disease. And so craft services were so interesting because they had a full gluten-free like table where nothing had touched anything and all these. I still use her um, breakfast when I work on sets. She just used a banana and peanut butter. And like, that's what she did. I was like, you're right. Who needs the bread? Banana dipped in peanut, peanut butter. butter. Like, I love that. Peanut butter apple is pretty good too. Yeah. Yeah. I do that a lot. 
I feel like that's an afternoon snack. Oh, okay. I like your classification for your different food. <laughs> I get, I get I'm into specific that. about these things. I like it. I like it. Um, I mean, I, any reason to talk about food is fine with me because I love to eat. <laughs> it is a little chance to have an adventure every day. <laughs> I, I like that. I do too. I like that a lot also. So so you moved from, you started with doing set, like still photography stuff. No. Well, no. What no. did you start with? Okay, because I saw that. That is a really hard job to get. Like oh. a crazy, See, crazy I don't know anything about yeah. set still photography. It's an amazing job. Um, really, really hard. Because there's only one per set. It doesn't matter if you're on Hannibal. There's still only one. You know, so in a way, everybody that wants that job, it's like being a director or something. It's like you only can hire one person. Um, they used to when it was on uh, slide film, which is really the most challenging film to shoot on. Um, they would ha- at least have an assistant who was running back and forth and like they got set experience and you could kind of come up that route. But once it went digital, um, that was it. Like you just got a lucky break. So I... After these big movies, I looked around set and was just like, okay, well, where I don't want to be a PA, that's obvious. Like, how, what, what do I, what department can I get into the fastest? So I went into the art department and I actually worked um, as an art director for many, many years. Um, mostly in commercials, when you're in smaller markets, like outside of New York or LA, um, crews have a lot more of an opportunity to work in some TV features and commercials. Um, where you get in these bigger cities, the commercial people work in commercials, the feature people work on features, TV people tend to work on TV because they're like 10, nine, 10 months of the year solidly working. So then their whole network is just people that are working 10 months a year solidly working. Feature people, they work together for like three, four months and, you know, however long. And then, so their network becomes the people with that schedule and commercial people can get hired for anywhere from one to one day to two weeks, but their friends are people that work on that schedule. And so it's literally not the actual skill set because filmmaking is still filmmaking in a lot of ways, but it's the schedule of how often you get hired and what's your freelance life like that ends up getting people so specifically in one of those areas as a crew member. Um, Interesting. Well, that's your network too, right? So it's like if you're working for a director that does more commercials, they're more likely to hire you, you know, for the next project with most crew positions it's like oh i work with that art director and they're hiring an art department and you know so it's slowly the way up yeah Yeah. oh this person that's now supervising under that art department but they know me so i get on a bigger project Mm -hmm. because there's more tiers of people there's like a larger um hierarchy Mm -hmm. so you don't have to get quite so far up the ladder to get a chance to get in because someone will be like oh i know someone oh we need you know, an art PA or we need, you know, X, Y, or Z. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I know somebody. And that's how you can start to get into bigger and bigger sets because your friends are your supervisors who then become someone else's supervisor and, you know, kind of cascades. What's the best and worst parts of working in an art department? Mm. So so I absolutely love the art department. Um, And now as a director, I'm like really hard on my art department because (laughs) they're like, they're like, damn you. I have like really high expectations of them and I know what I want and I know what's possible. Mm -hmm. So if they don't know how to solve the problem of it possible, but I know it's possible, I will still push them. Um, That's had some expensive mistakes in the past, Um, (laughs) but I was right in the end. So I feel very justified in my very expensive learning to my uh to my team but um i 
I think the worst part is you buy all these props, right? You spend a lot of time shopping and shopping with like a truck all the time. So you're driving around, oh, Pier 1, buying a ton of stuff. And then you pay with this cash budget. And so then after the job, um, you try and return as much as possible because you had it available for people to be like, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. But this stuff's never even used. It doesn't even have to be unboxed hardly. So it's all perfectly good to bring back to the store. But... Um, yeah, I know art directors that are blacklisted from certain peer ones. They have to return to different ones and keep switching stores that they return to because eventually they're just known as someone that's going to return buy huge purchases and then, and return. then return a huge amount of it. And, um, you know, sometimes you, you can be open with a store right away and say, like if it's a smaller store, you're like, let me know if there's a restocking fee because I'm probably going to bring this back. Um I've definitely invented stories before about I work for a designer and she's so picky and just invented a boss to give me a reason to be returning it because I'm so embarrassed to be returning this huge amount of stuff. Again. Well, and you have to give them your like name and number too. I feel like any return I've made in the past few years, it's like they want your name and address and phone number, and, and I don't know, this whole yeah, process. and keep track yeah. of it. So, so uh, to me, that's the worst part. Um, I've never been much of a shopper anyway. I do really like picking out things, but um, the art department is such a tangible part of filmmaking, and I love that. You know, uh, we were talking earlier about being an actor and how you get to really think about who this character is and how they are and what and, you know, all these balances. But as an art director in the art department, I can come in and make this apartment look like this because I imagine these people are like this. And I can put in tiny details and all of these little elements to create characters mm -hmm. that actors can then embody, mm -hmm. you know. So sometimes it's much more creative problem solving than that. I do a lot of commercial work right now. I'm a commercial director. I mean, that's really the part of the industry I've – um, they get much more focused in, but on movies, you know, I've worked on period films and we got to just go through all this amazing retro stuff and then create a house. But when you look in the smallest corner, they have the little doodad and that little plant and the little dead plant because that one didn't survive, you know, the being neglected and, you know, all those little details that make a place feel lived in and not a set. And that gets really exciting mm -hmm. and really, really fun. And it's incredibly gratifying. It's so exciting as an actor, too, to get on set and notice those little details because it gives you stuff to play with and it, like, feeds, you know, everything you've built, it's like too. You your wardrobe. And yeah. all of a oh sudden gosh, you're like, yeah. oh, I, oh, I know who shoes. you think I am based on the combination of the director and the wardrobe. And you figured out what that person would wear. And all of a sudden you're like, oh. Yes, I understand a whole new mm -hmm. embodiment of who this character is. And so the art department, a lot of these other departments, they get to be actors without acting. Yeah, they, well, because it's a, that's the thing to me that's so beautiful about film in general is that it's such a collaborative experience because you have to have like a clear enough vision all the way through in order for everyone to be, so that, you know, you're not put in a costume that's like completely different than the director's like, wait a minute, no, you know, but, but it's, it's, you all work together to create this through line. And it's just like such a beautiful thing to be able to collaborate with other people and create something yeah, together. And the same way that actors like will play off of someone else in a scene, the art director is playing off the wardrobe style, which is playing off hair and makeup, which is playing off of like, so we still have that same kind of back and forth and play that you guys find just working with other actors. So I think creatively you can really, I mean, I would never want to be an actor 
ever, ever, <laughs> ever. I'm so glad there are some people who say that because, you know. In New York, have, it doesn't feel like anyone else. that. It feels like everyone's like, I want to try being an actor. And you're like. <laughs> Probably even worse in LA. No. You know. Um, like yeah. And I think, um, you know, and it's true. It's really spoken about actually in animation. Animators are actors that don't want to be on camera. Because they will watch themselves in a mirror and keep doing this facial expressions and facial expressions until they can nuance, pick it out, and then in animation, help a creator, like a creature or person or character, make those expressions to have such a deep, like, realism and all those other elements. So they actually even are doing the acting of looking in a mirror and feeling out the moment, and yet they're not actors. Mm -hmm. So I think the film industry, in a way acting and everything else were all the same just different yeah no that's storytelling just in different ways and mm -hmm. you know how you contribute and how you collaborate yeah you know at the end of it it comes down to we're all telling a story and you can always tell if someone's less invested than everyone else and you're like yeah they kind of just threw that set together or they just kind of just grabbed some clothes or they you know versus projects like you were saying with your short film we'd talked a little before we record but about like the short film and how you were like well, we had to rehearse because we only had such time and that's one of the things independent filmmakers have that's amazing is time to think through all these things gather something slowly because it's cheaper you know and and put in that time and thought so that when they're like well i have a hundred dollars go make that apartment look completely different than it does <laughs> but they have that all that hard work of the thought process yeah and that gives them the chance to pull off something like that. Well, they don't have that easy out of throwing money at a problem, right? Like if you have a huge budget, you just throw money at the problem and it eventually gets fixed. But like as an indie filmmaker, you have to problem solve. You have to like pre-problem solve. Yeah. <laughs> it's like pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-problem like, pre, 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 solve. What are the things that are going to go wrong? What do we need? You know what? And, yeah. and plan it out. Um, because a lot of times when you don't, you get on set and you can't even get the shots because you didn't think through X, Y, and Z and everything's crashing down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of pre-thought. So how did you get from, um, from doing set to directing? Like, What was that transition? Was that like a slow so or? I worked in the art department, uh, for a long time and, um, I started, I got the opportunity to do some set photography on features, which was really exciting. I even got in the union to do that, um, which was really rough. I joined the union and then at my meeting where they're like, congratulations, you're in the guy that was there to like walk me through stuff was like, you have five years to make your career because this position is going to disappear. And I'm like, thank you very much. Okay. Ha -ha. Um, because I can start to take screen grabs. So eventually they could bring down set photographers to part-time, just getting background, director working with actors, you know, that kind of stuff. But we can get into that. Um, so I was in the art department and I was doing set photography, depending on the project. Um, and someone noticed, actually my line producers still work with to this day. Uh, shout out to Larry Buckley. He's amazing. <laughs> um, but I, he noticed that I really never went over budget. Like it just, you gave me that amount of money. That's all I'm going to spend, um, which to a line producer is like the greatest thing ever. Right? Yeah. Um, he's you. like, wow, this budget <laughs> still works. And um, he'd give me a really embarrassingly small budget for something we had to like from like just a, a blank set, create a law office. And I had a ridiculous amount of money. And so I thought it was kind of funny at the end. I like kind of 
poor change on his desk with my paperwork. But he was like, wait, you still went under budget. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't have any money to put into this. And so he really pushed me more into like coordinating and producing and um, that side of running a set. Um, because if you're really good with a budget, people just want you in charge of more budget. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's a, a real classic, life. classic journey. <laughs> right. When you're good at something, you get put in charge of it. Yeah. Even if you want to or not. And I think it was really, it was really, really good for me because it took me away from the creative process. I can rock a spreadsheet, but in a way, when you're dealing with money, no matter how different your set is, no matter how different the project is, the solutions are all kind of the same. You know, it comes back to your resources, money, time, and people, instead of being like, well, it could be purple, it could be orange, it could be for truce. You know, the solutions always came back to the same kind of spreadsheet. And, um, it starved me creatively enough to make me really say, like, what is it that I want? Where do I want to be going? And I had years previously, when I moved from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia, I worked for I worked on a set for this woman, Palmer Enfield. Um, and they had expected, like, I answered that on Craigslist. I moved to Philadelphia. I didn't know anybody. So I just took a job, like, came on as a PA. They thought I'd be, like, a high school student. They had no idea. They were just like, great, we need help um you know come in for this small shoot and by the end I'm like doing the graphic work and like doing all the stuff so they were like wait who are you and where did you come from I was like yeah I've actually been in film for a long time I just didn't know anyone in Philadelphia and so she's like well I'm gonna take you out for a drink we have to I have to know who you are so a couple days after the shoot she took me out and for some reason I really to this day will never understand why I had the clarity at that moment to say like well someday I'm gonna be a director I really don't know how I had that clarity because I forgot again, going right back into keeping a living, working, getting, you know, paying rent, all those kind of things. And my job was satisfying and creative and I'd get burnt out and it wasn't a hundred percent like going to keep me on fire with love for it, but it was still, it was a really good job and it was really interesting and engaging and you can just be focused on working all the time. Um, So when I moved to New York, finally, I moved here to be a director and I decided I wasn't going to come here and work in the art department and just get to know everybody. And, and then I was like, I don't want to transform myself in front of these people. I want to come in as a director and be a director. So I actually, you know, a decade after I thought I was done with it, I went back to restaurants and I came into New York, got a job, a night job. Sometimes I had a day job and a night job, and I was just like, I'm going to do my spec reel. I'm going to start investing in myself as a director. I'm going to figure this out. I took writing classes. I was like, if you start from a blank page, how do you have a story? And I took, you know, all kinds of screenwriting classes. I invested in how do I edit, learning all the editing software, really pouring into like, okay, because I knew the shoot. I knew from day one of shooting till we wrapped how to make a film, a TV show, a commercial. I'd done all of that. I'd done it on huge scales. I'd done it on micro scales. And I didn't know how you went from a blank page or an idea to shooting. And I didn't really understand fully how you went from the end of the shoot to being done. And so I put in a lot of time into those sides of things. Um, And eventually I was given an opportunity to... uh, work as a director for an animatics company 
which is a 3D animation, sometimes 2D animation uh, production house that is basically making tests for commercials Hmm. so that they can try out a few different ideas, see, you know, and brands can test things in front of an audience, see what commercial might do the best. And I came in to do all their live action work because they didn't, didn't have anyone that could run a set. And so I'd shoot blue screen, green screen, food, you know, plate shots, any of those kind of elements for uh, test commercials. And then through that, I met the crew members that eventually introduced me to the companies that I eventually signed with as a director. That's awesome. That's really cool. I like that you made the decision that that's what you wanted to do. There's such beauty in you taking charge of your own fate. It's really, really hard to switch cities with this job. You know, I meet people that are like, we're going out to LA or they're in a small market and they wish they could come to New York, but they just can't because so much of life is tying them down. And there's a lot of sacrifices to doing that. Um, and it's really hard to start over And the, you know, the longer you've been in film or the older you get, the harder it is to have that feeling of starting over, but there's so many rewards on the other side of it. And it's really hard to, you're an actor in front of all your friends and that's what you've done. And you've invested all of your energy and all your time into it. And then suddenly you're like, well, I kind of want to direct also, you have to kind of get people used to that idea, which is its own whole process. And so I kind of decided to skip that mostly because I'd also burnt myself out as an art director. And I knew that I would probably go right back to paying rent and burning myself out all over again. Um, I have that personality type. Um, so I did something that I didn't want to do at all. And I didn't even go back to cooking, though it would have made me much happier. And again, I would have gone back to a side job that wasn't quite the job I wanted, but I would have become satisfied with. I took a job I wouldn't be satisfied with. I took a job that was not going to make me happy enough so that I wouldn't forget that I was really trying to do something better or different. Not better. It's not better. Honestly, I had really, really good restaurant jobs. Um, <laughs> worked in really good restaurants. But um, yeah, just the different side of me that I wanted to keep feeding, I knew I needed to kind of starve it to make that stomach growl, to make it angry with me and say like, but what are you doing? Like, wait a minute. I will not just sit here and be satiated with night jobs. Yeah. So, and New York is a really hard city. You get lonely, you get all of those things, and you're trying to balance all of that out. New city, you have to make new friends, all of those things. So that was really great about a restaurant. I obviously met a lot of actors right away. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, what do you mean? I don't understand where you're I'm going not with this. I'm working in a restaurant, but definitely, oh, but I did for a definitely long time. a lot of my friends in the restaurant were actors. And in fact. So my first restaurant that I worked in, I became friends with uh, Katie Mulholland, who's now uh, a singer and uh, doing very well. She was an actor um, who have cast. She's actually a brilliant actor. I wish she was still acting. Katie, if you ever hear this, go back to acting too. You can <laughs> add it on top. She's talent listed. But um, she was very excited to be like, are you done? Like we were finishing up our shift and she was like, we're going, we're going, we're going. I was like, okay, what is it? I'd forgotten entirely, but it was the Oscars. And because we were working, I was working. I didn't, you know, we got the Sunday night shift. It's a bad day to be working. And we were the new kids. But she was like, yeah, but if if she pulled off all her side work fast enough, she could see the end. And I didn't have, I didn't even think about it. And so she dragged me out to this bar and I got to see Catherine Bigelow win Best Director. Mm -hmm. And I missed all of the rest of the Oscars, but I watched Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, I've always been 
and this is something in film, right? And I used to not understand this concept of like, you need to see it to do it. And I was just like, no, my whole life is about dreaming up something that nobody else has done and then going after it, you know? Like, no one else has told the story. Nobody else is, you know, I was like, I didn't really feel like I needed to see it, but I had no idea how much it would impact me to see it. And that night, so again, I'm just new to New York, like very new. I moved here January 2nd. Um, and so the Oscars are right in the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. And I had a dream that night that I, it was all in the first person, right? Like you can't see yourself. You're just like carrying the video camera. And I looked down, I'm getting out of a limo and I looked down, I'm in this like beautiful emerald green gown and it's a red carpet and everything's kind of fuzzy. It's very much like I could see up next to a tuxedo, but you're not really looking at people's faces. It's all the blur of, oh, I'm going into the Oscars and we go in the theater and, we, you know, this whole dream and then we sit and then they announce an Oscar. Now, it didn't have to be Best Director or anything. It could have been sound design. It could have been, you know, anything. But my husband, this guy next to me, stands up to get his Oscar. And we're all clapping and cheering. And then he gets that point in the speech where they all do, where they're like, and I want to thank my wife. I could never have done it without her. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait. And, they, you know, they come to, like, the camera on me for TV. And all of a sudden I'm like, what the fuck? Stop. <laughs> Everything in the dream rewinds. And it's all like this fast, like backwards. Yeah. Rewind. And suddenly I'm stepping on the same limo. I have the same dress, but it's peacock blue. And I'm going down the same tuxedo, kind of, you know, like a movie. You edit down quickly to get back in there. And then they announce an Oscar. Again, it didn't have to be Best Director. It was just an Oscar. Hello. Probably my phone. (laughs) Party foul. That's all right. Um, This is a weird, weird. part of the story. Yeah, I know. It's it's like. Oh, good. <laughs> a female filmmaker who it, it, I've been able to get in with a new production company. Exactly. And she's exciting. also been on this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Sorry. Okay, so go. Fancy. So, you, peacock I, blue. I come out in the same dress, but it's peacock blue. I come down the same thing. And they announce an Oscar. Again, whatever Oscar. And I'm winning the Oscar. And it, I look over and I brought my brother as my date. And I'm winning my own Oscar. And it was the first time, like, in a really deep way that I was like, I need to stop putting other people's dreams and before me. I need to stop saying, I'm so good at supporting roles. Like, I am a really good producer. I am really good at getting your dream to be better than it ever was going to be or more than you could have imagined. But I was always putting myself in that role. And it was the first time. And it was like the night after Catherine Bigelow won, I had that dream. And I suddenly realized, I was like, oh, my own dreams. I need to get other people behind my dreams instead of getting behind and helping everyone else's dreams. And it was the first time I really, really deeply understood that, like really deeply understood saying that my dreams could be the most important thing in my life. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, I think not for all women, I'm not going to generalize, but I think for a lot of women, I think that is hard because it feels selfish. Like for some reason, we yeah. feel selfish, whether it's society, you know, talking to us about it, or I, I, I don't know if it's with moms or, or that if made it's our just, lunches. Yeah, you know, it's something yeah. That simple, I don't know. But like that was the person or genetic, like of the time genetically too. Care of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and then also that's just the socialization of what we grew, like whatever it was that you grew up right. with. Because as much as society is where it is right now. I grew up in the 80s, which was a completely different culture and a completely different time. And it was, wasn't going to be, you know, the same idea of like, you and your brothers can be all the same. You know, that wasn't normalized yet. Like young people now. And in a lot of ways, I feel my place in history as a filmmaker is 
also to pave the way that those young women get a chance to go even further. It's not about, I have to make the $100 million movie and I have to be the next Shonda Rhimes and I have to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd love to do any of those things, but <laughs> um, I really, really would like to make a superhero movie. That's I awesome. I actually super love that genre and can go hours discussing Deadpool like endlessly. <laughs> okay, so, so if you were going to do that, what superhero movie would it be? Well, I don't actually have the right humor to direct Deadpool, so I wouldn't actually go with who do I like the most, um, because that's that I wouldn't be the right person for that project. Right? Yeah, but if you um, if you were like if you have like this dream, like Elise, I'm stealing one of Elise's yeah. favorite questions, and I'm sorry, I apologize. That's okay. You um, can steal. Uh, <laughs> Elise always asks like if you could direct, you your know, passion. if you could make what would be your passion project if you could do anything that like money, time, whatever's not an issue. I. I would rather be the next Peter Jackson making the next Lord of the Rings than I would being, you know, the person that got to make Wonder Woman, which is amazing and amazing. I'm super excited to see it. But I would probably do an epic fantasy. Yes. I love that. Yeah. That's cool. Like, because I'm also the type of filmmaker um, that I'm very, very intense. Very intense person. I have very intense personality. But I love layering in all this stuff. So instead of being the nerd that wants to dissect something forever, I want to make the things that nerds can dissect forever because I've layered in so much. There's forever to go. And so I would rather write the next Game of Thrones that people can like just never end the, like figuring it out. And you just like you can keep getting deeper and deeper into that and there's still more to uncover and it's really complicated. So I'd rather um, create the next American mythology. I love that. Yeah. I think that's that's really cool because there – I mean, I don't know for sure because I have not done extensive research on this, but I don't know. There's um, – from my knowledge, there aren't as many women in that particular There aren't many part of people the business. in that part of the business. There are very few films like that that get made. Game of Thrones actually does a very good job of hiring women to direct. Um, and by very good, I think they're at 20%, but for <laughs> – for shows and for shows that shoot I mean, all over the world and in these really complicated yeah, ways, yeah, you know, there are not many directors qualified to reach a Game of Thrones style of shooting. You know, some of these HBO shows or something that are very much more like really engaging. They're a very complicated way of shooting. Um, Game of Thrones shoots simultaneously all episodes. You know, so they are shooting while we're in. Pakistan we need to shoot every scene that we're going to be shooting all so all the different directors are coming in and out of Pakistan to shoot their parts they're all over the world and so it's a very very complicated show um but they do have female directors um you can watch amazing interviews with them they're very exciting women but if you look at the larger scheme of things outside of animation fantasy still doesn't have a very large I mean because you would put superheroes in their own category, sci-fi in its own category, and then fantasy in its own category. So there really isn't many Peter Jacksons out there. It's kind of kind of him in a way. So, <laughs> it's kind of yeah, just the fact that he's not a woman, but he has a female writing partner and his female writing partner producer wife, and those women are equal partners in his creative process. I would say he's two-thirds women, so <laughs> he's still doing pretty well. Doing I like pretty it. Well. I like it. Yeah. I like I it. I like that. Two-thirds women. Two th- I know. <laughs> he, has a deal, he has a deal with his wife. That she yeah. doesn't want to ever be a public face. So even we watch documentaries. And I love that style of filmmaker. Again, you have 20 hours of documentaries on every one of his films. Mm-hmm. And she's never allowed to be seen. 
you can hear her voice occasionally, but you never see her. And they shoot it in such a way, they put her on the table in such a way that she's absolutely not visible at all. And so <laughs> Fran Walsh gets to have the private life that she wants to have, but she co-wrote that film. She absolutely gets asked creative questions on set. You know, the actors, they'll put her on the phone. They'll be talking it through. You know, you can see all of that. You can see her involvement in that creative process in a really gratifying way. Um, but she doesn't have to have the director title. And it really does make sense to give one person that title. Um, directing teams never have made sense to me, but there are a lot of them. It's very interesting. So at the end of the day, it has to come down to, it's like that leader aspect, right? Like people need to know who to go to. I feel like when that's two people, it's like, who do I ask, especially if they're not together. And it's always such a big deal to ask a director a question because they're so busy with everything else. So, so I think that's what kind of gets it complicated with, you know, I used to get asked, um, a lot if I had trouble like being respected on set as a female director. Um, and have a lot, I have a journal where I like break down all my jobs and I go through this pre and post-production thing. And, and there's always a little square section that where I'm like on being a female director, like what was the experience specific to this job that had a moment or a conversation or something that related back to being a female director. Um, but I used to get asked that question, do you have trouble being respected? And I have never, never had that problem because I'm also a director DP. So I run every technical department I'm in charge of the grips, the electrics. I'm in charge of the camera department. I'm in charge of production. I'm in charge of the art department. There is no one else to go to. You can't go behind my back and try and get things done your way. You can't, you know, there is literally no one else to turn to. And um, I think I almost needed that as a director um, to, to know that I had what it took to be their leader, to run the crew, to be in charge of it all and to have earned that and understood that for myself. I don't, I absolutely don't think this is something that everybody needs to do, but I am a very intensive type of person. And I, um, and I did have all the photography background and things to go into, um, being a director of photography, but, um, that I felt was a really big part of it. I was like, no, nobody questions my authority because I give no one else any authority to have any opinions. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also, I think a lot of it has to do with knowledge, right? Like if you you have the knowledge of how everything works technically, they're going to respect you. You know what I mean? I think it's right. that... When I push my art department, I actually know that it's possible at the end of the day. They'll have to figure out how, but I do literally know that it can be accomplished. So I'm not asking something off the top of their head. In fact, one of the reasons it took me so long to become a director, um, when I started in film, I worked on a lot of indie films, right? A lot of small productions. And um, you got a lot of MFA guys coming out of school, getting to make their thesis film, and they'd hire these small indie crews. And nobody respected them. Like nobody, the crew knows so much more about filmmaking. They had theory, they maybe had a script, but they were kind of wandering around like chickens with their head cut off and the crew was making the film for them. And then knowing they'd go into editing and ruin it again, but they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't really understand their tools. They didn't understand the tool of each crew member. They didn't understand all that. I mean, they had a lot of theory. They might have had a lot of ideas and some of them have become very good filmmakers, but you're on their very first set. And they've had the least amount of set experience. They have less than the PAs. 
some of the PAs had more time on set than the director. And I saw that and I was like, I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. And I think it took me a lot longer to become a director because I had to say, I'm ready to be everyone's leader. Mm-hmm. Like I'm ready to be the manager, be, take on all of this. And I, I wouldn't have done that if I was the fake it till you make it thing. I honestly, in, in my own life, I find that to be a very masculine idea because I find women <laughs> much more preference to study and learn and make sure they're ready before they do it. Because the when I have this conversation with women, it's more of how many times did we not get hired because we were overqualified than the fake it till we make it. You know, and you can have the same conversation. Some people will be like, fake it till you make it. And the other people are like, yeah, I was overqualified and they wouldn't take me. And I was like, yeah, I... That's a pretty big dividing line. I tend mm-hmm. to be more in the overqualified category. Um, but I want to be. I want to be in that category. I want to understand it all. Like people ask me all the time, so what do you do for fun? And I'm like, I watch movies. <laughs> and they're like, no, really. Like, what do you do to relax? And I'm like, S- still more filmmaking. <laughs> I'm like, oh, and then Studying, sometimes educating I'm myself. Like, yeah. Reading, writing, going to the movies, watching TV. Mm-hmm. Like all these things count kind of as work. And so you're like, well, I don't really relax, I guess. If you count all of it as working, then no, no, I I don't relax at all. I just keep working. But like, whatever, we can watch Game of Thrones and consider it work because we're studying our own medium. We're studying our own like format and genre and like all of these things. Like, come on, you can't tell me you guys don't watch it and analyze actors the whole time. Oh, yeah. You like try so hard. It has to be such a good show before you're not. Well, like, yeah, I, I mean, you have to be really lost in the story. The way, yeah, yeah, the way they shoot things, or you know, I, I drive my husband crazy because I'm like, look at that, that was one shot that whole time, and I'll like rewind <laughs> it and make him watch it. He's like, can we just watch the movie? He's like, that didn't actually make a difference to me at all. <laughs> I'm and like, you're like, whoa, it was like, amazing. look at the way they moved the camera and they caught every little, you know, like every little thing. Like, I get timing like, was like so geek perfect. out over <laughs> it, and he's like, okay, let's keep watching now, you know. Brandon, Brandon, just he's just he's just nods his head and yeah. smiles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've had I've been finding myself doing that a lot, like because it's almost to the more you learn, the more you're like, oh. Well, I see this and this happening oh, as far yeah. as like the filmic aspect. Because the actors, of course, you always like have like I'm always like thinking in that actor brain part of myself as to, oh, well, that was a very interesting choice to make in that moment. And or the opposite of like that was a terrible choice. That happens too. Um, but um, but I've been finding like, for instance, been watching the The Handmaid's Tale, which is mm-hmm. horrifying and amazing. Um, but the uh the the cinematography in that is so amazing to me Murano of course yeah. it is because yeah. she's she is, such she's a so fucking badass god she's a badass yeah she's very she's very very supportive of other female filmmakers like cool. i got to meet her and like send her some emails with some questions and she wrote back right away and was like yeah, awesome da, 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 like talk through things like she's well maybe that's really our next supportive. podcast guest yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Let's reach out Good to her. That. She's yeah. a little busy She's now. A little, really She's what? a little busy What do you mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, just watching the cinematography on that, it just you literally feel like you're in the room with them and it makes it that much more painful because you are yeah. a part of that scene. Yeah, she's another yeah. DP director which is and she's really a cool. dp that later became a director mm-hmm. and she was really accomplished filmmaker before she became a director and that was something that i really related to with her um she's the youngest member of 
the A oh no no I was about to say AACP obviously that is advertising that's not the same thing <laughs> um, but the the ASC um, which is like the a really high honor for cinematographers and she's like the youngest member ever um, she's incredibly talented incredibly you know. I could say it again in a different way. She's gifted. She's talented. She's, you know, yeah. all these things. She's amazeballs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she has the best picture ever of her in a desert holding a big heavy camera while nine months pregnant. And come on. <laughs> it's really hard to beat that. Amazing image. That's oh my awesome. God. I have uh, to Google that she's image. She's like an icon for all done. women, yeah. like filmmakers after that. Like, yeah. it's so beautiful. Well, and she's telling really powerful female stories too. Did you see Meadowland? Yes. Oh my God. And I got to go to a talk back and listen to her and Olivia Wilde talk about it. And it was incredible. I bet we were in the same room. We probably were. (laughs) So, um, we were talking earlier and I know that you do, um, your specialty, um, and what you're, you're working toward right now is a lot of commercial directing. Mm -hmm. Um, so what would you say is your, is your favorite thing about doing about commercial directing versus um, like film? So I can be a lot more abstract. Um, I'm not necessarily having these actors talk and then lead to a scene and lead, you know taking an hour to give you an emotional experience. I can give you an emotional experience in 30 seconds, sometimes less. You know, and I think that's really really powerful, and it it shapes my work and it shapes my experience um, much more quickly. I also get to work on a huge variety of projects comparatively in a very short amount of time. Now, commercials are incredibly competitive, um, so it's not like I'm working all the time. I wish. But um, but the number of sets, the number of shoots, the number of productions that I get to work on and create in any given year, if I was doing a feature and you do a feature every three years, you're pretty much crushing it. Like, for, I mean, yeah. even big directors, yeah. they're like crushing because their films just take so long. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, there's, you know, hypothetically, I could easily do three commercials in a month and they could have completely different crews. I could shoot them all over the world. Uh, one of my favorite parts of what my work right now is that I will get on a plane and be taken to Moscow and just dropped in the middle of Moscow by myself with a new crew that I've never worked with. Most of them don't speak English. And I'll do a casting and I'll do a production and I'll end up with a spot that really looks and feels like my work. And I, I don't speak Russian. I mean, shocker there. I'm actually starting to <laughs> study Russian a little bit. Um, but I, and I've gotten to go to many places. I've, uh, I have some crew members in Poland that I now try and take to meet with me to other countries. Um, I have an AD from Ukraine who I would bring all over the world if I could um shooting in Canada shooting so I do get on a plane really frequently for my work and that's challenging because I don't have anyone that just we have starting to build a language I don't have an AD that I'm like yes all the time this is my person and this makes sense um I do have a line producer Larry who um pushed me more into being (laughs) control of more things bless you um but you know by and large I get an entirely new team every time I work and that's really hard but I've, I've learned so much faster than I would have had the chance to otherwise. And I'm learning, again, I like to be overprepared. So I still take screenwriting classes. I still take the things because I want to understand narrative. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm trying to do a feature. I'm actually not. I'm one of the few people I know that's not just aiming to do their indie feature. Um, but I do really love passionately storytelling and narrative work um, wherever that takes me in the future. But... 
I can learn my tools, I can learn my craft, and I can learn the editing, the post-production, the color, the sound design. I can study all of these things in such detail where we pour over a commercial frame by frame, steal four frames over here, two frames over here, da-da-da-da, because I'm trying to add another shot to the whole piece. And can I do it by shaving little pieces? What's the absolute latest I can get into a shot and the absolute earliest I can get out of a shot? you know, in order to still effectively and motion into motion and all those points of editing, um, I get to study in great detail in an intensive way over and over again. As, as a director, are you pretty involved in the editing process? Like the post? So in my international work, Mm -hmm. I stay in the other country all the way through post. Um, in American work, often I have a production company that I can take on the post and that's great because then I get to be involved in the editing. Um, but in American work, traditionally the agency will take the footage and edit it without you. And you just get given a spot at the end that is or is not anything like what you thought it would be. Wow. And I've had both experiences. Do they have conversations sure. with you about like, no, no they do that's not. That's so interesting. They came in with that the could idea. be a totally different commercial. Yes. Commercial. I, I had a commercial that was very child centric. And we cast it. Everything was about problem solving on the child part of the story and like child, child, child. And then in the end, they edited a mom heavy spot and we didn't even have enough shots to finish the spot. So it's very important um, as a commercial director, I get to do director's cuts. I don't distribute them. They don't really end up online. They don't end up anywhere because they're not approved by the client. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of legal stuff that Mm -hmm. goes into commercials. But if I'm presenting my reel privately to try and get more work, I can show the version that I wish I had made. Um, But I've also, I've worked with brilliant agencies where I've gotten pieces back and I was like, it was everything I hoped it could be and more. Because one of the things I love so desperately about filmmaking is the collaborative nature of it. Like, I like leading a team and getting all of them to give me better work than they thought they could. From my actors to my art department to my wardrobe to makeup to every, you know, even my clients and my agency people. Like, can they push themselves even bigger and better than what they had first come up with, you know, and we have these ideas by ourselves and like directing yourself as an actor. It's only going to be as good as what was in your head the first time Mm -hmm. because you're not having someone else push you further. And so I really, really love nothing more than getting the input of my team and the input of the agency and the clients and working, you know, as a team to create the final piece. And so sometimes like when I've gotten a really good edit back and I'm just blown away, I can see the hand of the talent of the editor, the talent of the team, the agency coming through and following through on everything in a way that I had dreamed it, but they made it even better than I might have. And that's always a really exciting part of filmmaking too. Are commercials changing with the Netflix and the Hulus that aren't showing commercials? Even some, uh, even the way people are watching um, network TV, they fast forward through the commercials. You know, Mm -hmm. have you noticed anything with um, creating a commercial or anything that's changing to make them more watchable or, you know, so many people? So I feel the quick answer is no. The quick answer. Uh, no, agencies have always wanted you to pay attention, to be eye-catching, to be interesting, to be creative. And clients 
by and large can be very conservative and very fearful because their brand is their baby and their products are baby and they're responsible for whether the commercial does well or not. And they see it doing well or not in hard numbers. Did we sell more? Did we, you know, get more hits? Like all those kinds of things. So more commercials are now available online. Um, but there's always been a push, even if the push now is a different type of creative um, because we're like, oh, we could put it on YouTube in a way you actually want to watch it. We could make them viral. We could do these things. That's, that does exist, but you'll still always have a client that kind of eats away at that creative, um, a team, whether or not they can pull it off as they were hoping to in creative, um, whether people are willing to push boundaries. That's kind of always existed. Um, and you'll you'll see a lot of ideas that might have started out really cute or cool or funny that kind of went flat and you can't blame anyone yeah and that's the one frustrating thing about being a commercial director because i am responsible i'm responsible for the shoot i'm responsible for that but i didn't even get to edit i was not the client i was not you know there's so many things that i actually don't and that's why i need to always protect my ability to do a director's cut, which is a lot of work, um, to make something that I, I wished I'd made. Um, because all I'm trying to do is make the client happy. That's all. It might not be the best thing for my career. It might not be the best thing for my reel. It might not be the best thing for even the brand, but I want them to feel safe. I want them to feel good about what we've made. I want them to feel confident about the campaign that they put together. Um, you know, and I'm really one part of three with the client and the agency and me. So, um, it's like if you were making your film, but the writers on set and their producer, and you have the main actor who's also a producer, you know, and so you're directing, but you have these two other people that have creative huge amounts of sway. And in commercials, that's always the situation. You know, people, um, TV directing is probably the least creative of all directing. Um, very, very technical. You have the entire writer staff that is telling you exactly what to do and how to do it. I mean, <laughs> they don't tell you where to set up your shots and things like that, but it, in the end of the day, they edit it, they wrote it, they edit it, they are on set deciding how it goes. They can talk to the actors about how it goes. You are really, it's an, a show exists and functions well. You're coming in for just one section of that and trying not to mess up a moving machine. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And that yeah. is, that's your job is yeah. not mess up a system that's running smoothly and you need it to be able to deliver. You need it to edit well, but you are not the creative lead at all. Commercial directing actually has quite a bit more creativity. I can really push them on the boards and ideas you know, it's sometimes, you know, this is always a sometimes, but you can, you can have ideas, you can have suggestions, you can really like lead things in a lot of ways. Um, obviously not with TV or commercials. This is not a, you know, hundred percent of the time kind of conversation, right. but, um, you know, I, I get a lot of people that, again, they might've done a feature and they're like, oh, I want to do commercials. And I was like, well, nobody knows if you can tell a story in 30 seconds, And no one can know if you can do it on these budgets. So nobody cares that you've made a movie, like at all. Did you cut your own trailer? That's the beginning of being interesting. You have to make your own commercials. You have to like do this a totally different career because, and people don't want to trust a commercial director with a feature because they're like, well, we know how much money you could spend on 30 seconds. Can you really tell a movie for an hour and a half? And can we continue a story for an hour and a half? You know, and it's a totally different skill um, within the micro skills of our talents. Um, and it can be very, very frustrating, but a lot of people think they want to be a director and they're wrong because they only like 5% of the job. 
maybe 10% if they've really learned a lot about filmmaking, but like most people don't like a huge majority of the director's job. And a lot of people think that they're an author, like they're the artura. They're going to be the creative force on set. And even as a director, that is very, very small percentage of directing. That is the feature films, the writer-director features. They all have studios behind them. They have people telling you, like, they have actors that are famous enough to have sway. Like, there is a lot of compromise. There is a lot of other people's creativity coming into it, allowing actors to have interesting moments and choices, allowing things, allowing happy accidents. And people um, really have a misconception that directing is about controlling and having their own idea and then getting all their minions to just create it. And it's that's the farthest thing from what directing actually is. Yeah. If somebody wants to get into commercial directing, what would you recommend like them to? hundred percent. First thing you do, you go on Amazon, you buy this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Tell us what book. It is called the 32nd storyteller. Oh, it is the only book written about commercial directing, but it will break down. Commercial directing has a lot of technical skills, the technicalities. So, the film industry, you've got TV, features, documentary, commercials. So, okay, we've sorted them out. Now we're down into commercials. Well, as a director, there's 12 specializations. And you have to specialize. If you don't specialize, you're specializing in your budget range, which is probably small. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's definitely small because if you don't have a specialization, you're not getting the big budgets because they're going to hire someone super specialized in what that big budget requires. There's cars is one specialization. Babies, kids, different than babies. You know, there's food, there's liquids, different from food. There's comedy. Then you've got subcategories in comedy. Are you physical comedy? Are you verbal comedy? Are you editing comedy? Special effects, you know, graphics. There's so many, you know, and again, there's a very long sports, celebrity. I'm not going to get hired to have Scarlett Johansson in a commercial because I don't have any major celebrities on my commercial reel. Um, In fact, it took me four years as a director to get dialogue on my reel. And there was a lot of jobs I couldn't get up for because I didn't already have dialogue to prove that my people that were acting could open their mouths and talk. (laughs) I had to prove that I could direct someone speaking out loud. And it took four years to get the chance. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's not going to happen overnight. It is incredibly competitive because of all the types of directing, it is one of the highest paid. Um, yeah, because a lot of people, I know a lot of directors that they do the commercial work to pay the rent and then they're making shorts and indies on the side. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, and it's still, even as a crew member, if you want to just learn about the film industry, commercials tend to pay the highest because they're hiring you for a short amount of time. Movies will pay you a little bit less, but they're offering you a couple months of employment and TV shows pay you the least, even by union standards, because they're hiring you for most of a year. You know, so in the long term, they're paying you a lot of money, but they don't have to pay you as much per day. And commercials are the highest of that. So if you're in demand within commercials in any job, commercial PAs make very real incomes Um, and they can work five days a week every year of the year. Like they can work every week of the year. They can be working all the time. So in the end, they'd make more than even the TV guy because they're making more per day. And there's no reason for a really good PA no reason for them not to be working like every day because they are so important. Um, so the first thing you do, you buy that book, 30 Second Storyteller. Read it. Um, <laughs> read it again. <laughs> then you need, it's the same way every time. You need to make a series of spec commercials. Now, spec commercial is it's literally a fake ad 
you want to make sure you're not sued over it. So you got to do a little research. Um, but it should look as real as if a brand paid you and had a full budget. Like the most important thing is that it looks exactly like a real commercial that is indistinguishable. If you need a little legal, like don't try this at home, like add the little legal, don't try this at home. You know, every in every way you want to, and you need to make, typically before you can even get signed, before people even in, invest in you in a small way, you need five of them. So you don't want to spend all your money on one commercial. You need five of them. They might need crane shots. They might need this. They might need, they need to be, and they should all feel somehow similar. So they're not all for the same brand, but they should all, you know, if you want to have dogs, animals, its own category, you should have <laughs> a pet in every one, every one of, of those them. commercials because then you could become an animal director, which is its own thing. <laughs> I could never be hired on a commercial that needed pets. I do not have any animals summer, nor do I want them. Oh my God. They're that's crazy. All, that's rough. I can yes. imagine. And even you get very trained actors in a, a trained animal actors in the US, like some animals that really can do whatever their trainer tells them to do. But I'm still like, no, that that sounds terrible. Continuity, um, like dealing, I yeah. don't know. But however, like a lot of people find the two hardest categories is, you know, kids and babies and food. And those are my two favorite categories. Like that's that's almost all of my work. I'm a lifestyle director that has like a lot of food work and a lot of children's work so on average the kids in my reel are all five years old it's a very young age group mm -hmm. to work with mm -hmm. and that's you know what i'll work with all over the world like i have a russian spot with two kids that don't really speak english and they're amazing and they were so wonderful to work with and i just i really loved it but if you don't love it, if you don't have a natural like relationship with kids automatically if kids don't like kind of automatically like you you'll never want those work, jobs. Yeah. Like you don't yeah. want any commercial. Yeah. You want a commercial that you can do well. Yeah. And a lot of people can't do either of those genres well mm -hmm. um, because they're, they're very tricky. Yeah. And they require a very different energy than working with a famous football player or working with a car or working with, you know, I don't know, Bugs Bunny. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. all very, very different. And so they will hire people that are the most specialized and the most qualified in those ranges which is why people fight it all the time they're like I, don't, I want to do any everything i want to do everything and i'm like break out of your pigeonhole once you get a pigeonhole but get a pigeonhole get your foot in the door then you can worry about your other foot kicking through an extra spot yeah <laughs> you know but like if you don't really stay focused and saying like i'm gonna get this one skill seriously down yeah and then try other ones you're never really gonna you're gonna stay in this kind of low budget indie range where they're just like well yeah i mean you know how to direct but nobody's gonna say like so right you yeah. really know no. how to do x y or z uh last question mm. what's your favorite super bowl commercial Ooh, don't have one <laughs> <laughs> bad, bad last question yeah. that is the best answer though ever i love you're just like clearly there was no. no thought that went into that you're like do not have one no no <laughs> There, I, I, I and the Super Bowl commercials thought, have been so disappointing for years. Oh, they I, have been. I, I agree. Um, and I, I don't agree. watch the Super Bowl, so I will go to a website after that. Like oh, I will no, spend I hours and hours watching commercials. Yeah. Like people do not 
actually expect me to do this, but um, <laughs> I can spend seven hours on YouTube watching nothing but commercials. Like I will just like I'll if I'm working for a brand or if I'm up to work with a brand, I'll watch every commercial I've had since the seventies. Mm-hmm. Everything I can find from that brand. I will look at one director's reel and I'll watch every commercial I can find of that one director and just study what that one person does. Um, so I used to go and like even watch what were the Super Bowl commercials, like, oh, were they clever? Now, really, I go to the AACP Awards and see who uh. actually got to pull off something really creative around the world, like who really got to do something that made us all say like, yay. Awesome. And um, they usually don't play in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, then, if, since that wasn't a that wasn't a question that you were like, it didn't feel satisfying. So he I want to ask more you, questions. No, no. <laughs> I always have questions. Um, I love that about you. <laughs> so, what is what is it that you really enjoy working with kids? I really like teaching. I really care about having interns. I really care about mentorship. I really care if I have a large set to save one or two PA positions for people that haven't gotten to experience something like that, even though they're going to be kind of a waste for my producer and not be able to do that much. But I want them to get that experience. I want them to see it. I want them to learn. And with kids, um, on my my last shoot with with a, a very young boy in the commercial and I was able to teach him about running more silently instead of plopping his feet down blah 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 and stuff and he was just so engaged and he was so excited about it and with a kid you're not trying to say what I want you to do is turn this way a little bit more next time you're trying to get them so excited and so in the moment that when they go in they will just naturally do something and working with an actor in that way where I'm just trying to get them in the moment and with a commercial that's always going to be some kind of happy moment because it's commercial (laughs) and you know some kind of excitement over what's going on so I get it's a very happy set generally you know we're all keeping the energy up we try and work very quickly Um, and I usually get the freedom rather than push my actor for the 40th take I can say like oh we've done like 10 to 15 however many takes that child can handle when you see them wearing down and you see it it's so clear that I can be like I'm just going to play around we're going to improv we're going to try something else we're going to like play with some other things rather than push on the same thing over and over again so I actually get on set creativity with the client and agency that I might not have gotten if they're just like why can't our actor do this like do it again do it again. Throw the chicken in the air. Catch it in your mouth. Just throw it in the air and catch it in your mouth. You can, just do it. You can do it. I've seen you do it. Why aren't you doing it? Try again. You know, but with a kid, they were like, well, let's try Let's try a different attempt. Let's try a different, you know, a, approach with playing. it. And it's a lot more playing. And it's a lot more like making sure that they've had the most fun day ever. Mm-hmm. Um, because they should feel like it was the most fun day ever. And I get the freedom and the freedom from everybody above me, everybody around me to say that that's the most important thing. So it's really, really fun for me to work with them. But I also like to actually teach them acting fundamentals. If I thought they had enough talent for me to cast them, which is a big deal, um, then I want them to love it. I want them to love acting. I want them to be interested in getting better at it. I want them to be interested in studying it. Why? Because I like studying everything. I know. Uh, I can tell you a list of books, books on editing, books on acting methods, books on everything. But like getting a kid to feel like, oh, I don't want them to see acting as going on a Disney show. I want them to see acting as this creative industry full of people. My little boy on that set, when he left, he's like, I think I want to go in the lighting department someday. And I was like, now that is gratifying to me. 
that is awesome. I was like, yeah, they have a really cool job, don't they? You know, and then like, hey, making sure that on day two of the shoot that someone knows that he said that. So someone in the lighting department can be like, hey, do you know what that one's called? Do you know we have nicknames for all these lights? You know, you know, whatever. And just like something that gets them engaged, something that lets them see it in the wholesome way that I see the film industry, not in the way that it's portrayed by like casting and acting and everybody that wants to get into it, but really by the people that work in it for life and mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, no, this is a great industry with great people. It's not, I mean, when you're an actor and you're auditioning all the time, it feels like this is such a cutthroat, terrible industry full of like daggers and knives and people ready to walk over you. But when you're on set and when you're on crew and when you could just work in the film industry, it can be an incredibly supportive and beautiful industry. And you could be someone that like, I just make medieval props. That's what I do. (laughs) But guess what? I get flown all over for Game of Thrones because I make the best medieval props, you know, and where else are you going to get that kind of freedom or that kind of like experience? Yeah. So that's what I like my kids to walk away with and to feel like when they go to school the next day to be like, I had the coolest thing ever. And, um, yeah. And I feel like I'm in a unique position to actually give them a wholesome experience out of it. So I love that. That's beautiful. Magical. Yeah, it is. Well, tell everyone where they can find you. Um, if you went okay, that um, wasn't very specific, clearly. But uh, where, on on no. online, where can they find you? Um, what are your handles? And- so I, my website is anakashonafeld.com, which no one can spell. So don't worry, you guys will have a link. We will somewhere because don't worry, you don't have to spell my name. <laughs> and once you found my website and then figured out how to spell my name, which again. My first or last name, probably can't spell. Um, <laughs> I have Annika Schoenfeld Director is a Facebook page where I will post, you know, hey, I'm shooting in Poland. Here's some photos. Here's kind of what's going on or um, wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing. Um, fun pictures from behind the scenes, things like that. Um, so I think those would be the main places to reach out to me. I do... Um, I do respond if people like write to me through Facebook. I might not check it or get that message on the page for a while, but I do, you know, write back to people and love to answer questions. So cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sitting here. It's um, the sun is destroying us right now. Um, It is very bright and warm. (laughs) It would not be the first time that it has happened to me. So um, yes. Um, But thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.